Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. You know, in the, in the grand scheme of research discoveries, it's all about time and money. And the more money you have, the less time it takes. Hibernation is not something that's been well-funded and, and therefore it has not been well-studied. I think the methods are there now to really crack it open and figure out how it works. And it's really just, is there going to be enough money and enough? are there going to be enough people working on it to make the progress that's needed to actually get humans to hibernate? Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. I'm Jonathan McRae. That is the voice of Sandy Martin, an expert on hibernation, who we're going to be hearing from later on in the podcast. She says that NASA are banking on us solving human hibernation before 2030 so we can send people to Mars. That's hibernating human beings. Amazing science coming up on the podcast in a few minutes' time. This is Future Proof with me, Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. We'll get to all of those questions later on. Before we go into um, the science of human hibernation, though, it's time to look back at the week's news. And joining us is Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and from the University of Galway, Dr. Jessamine Fairfield. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Ruth, has to do with a liquid telescope. What on earth is that? Well, I have to, I, I had to look it up, Jonathan, I'm not going to lie. But I mean, most telescopes work on the basis of having a big curved mirror or a lens and those mirrors concentrate the light. And the bigger the mirror or the lens that you have, the more light a telescope can gather. So these big, powerful telescopes that we've all seen that look up at the stars are huge because essentially they have these big optics inside them. But they're very, very expensive. And um, so to create these perfect mirrors and perfect lenses costs a huge amount of money and can take years because they have to be absolutely flawless if you're going to capture the light and be able to see the detail from space, um, you know, millions and millions of miles away. So one idea that, that really came from Isaac Newton was the idea of using liquid. And, and probably the best way to imagine this is if you've ever stirred a cup of tea or coffee, you've probably noticed that it, it sort of develops a well in the middle. It almost becomes bowl shaped. And in fact, if you rotate a liquid at a constant speed, gravity causes the surface of that liquid to become a perfect parabola. And that is the shape that we need um, in a mirror or a lens to, to work a telescope. So the idea is if you have a reflecting liquid like mercury and you could spin it at a constant pace, you could, for, for much lower cost, potentially create a huge telescope. And that's exactly what scientists have done. Um, because the world's largest astronomical liquid telescope has just um, has started this year, and they, they just announced their results this week. They started collecting data. So up from the Himalayas in India, they have this enormous liquid telescope, which is built on a pool of mercury. So it's a four meter wide pool of mercury in a special uh, basin, uh, which is actually suspended on on air, on compressed air to stop it rippling. And it rotates uh, every eight seconds. Uh, and it's this perfect mirror looking up at the stars. That's insane. Yeah, How have it, I not heard of that about this before? Yeah. Uh, and so the light comes into a sensor in the middle of the dish. Is that right? Or yeah. how, how does it, well, like, what is it? Does it look like an ordinary s telescope that's just spinning? 
it looks like an enormous, perfect mirror looking up at the stars. And then, of course, there's lenses and other mirrors looking down at that, concentrating the light, the huge picture that's there. Um, but but it is incredible. And scientists, th- this idea came from the early 20th century in terms of putting it into practice. But those ripples were a problem. Getting the mercury was a problem. So so they, they've overcome an awful lot of challenges. And this is built at like two and a half thousand metres. So they had to get all the equipment up to the top of the Himalayas. It can only look in one place. It is a fixed telescope, so it has one zenith. You can't move it around like some of the other telescopes where you can adjust the lenses. But it's been built beside an an ordinary uh, mirror-based telescope. So astronomers, if they see anything interesting, they can look around using the the other telescope. Um, But it actually provides huge accuracy. They're already seeing things uh, going past. They can't use it if it's raining, so it is going to be closed during the rainy season. That is a drawback. But it was incredibly cost effective. So so the telescope that sits beside it cost about 17 million, whereas this one only costs 2 million. And of course, the other thing about it is, and, and this is kind of really looking forward, NASA is thinking about whether we could take telescopes into space. And of course, the weight is a big issue there. So big, heavy lenses and mirrors aren't going to work. But if you take liquid into space where there's microgravity, you can get these perfect spheres, which will also act as lenses. So one idea is we could think about putting a liquid telescope on the moon, which would enable us to look far, far out um, into the universe potentially to the first stars that were formed, uh, which even telescopes like the James Webb won't be able to see. Um, So this is it's really exciting. That is an amazing story. Absolutely incredible. And I love, you know, when we hear about these sort of um, really clever feats of engineering that that, uh, achieve achieve these kind of really cool ideas. Uh, Jessamine, our second story uh, has to do with DNA from two million years ago. That's right. So this is the oldest DNA that's ever been sequenced. Uh, The previous record was about 1 million years ago, DNA that had been found in a Siberian mammoth bone. But this, these researchers from Cambridge and the University of Copenhagen were trying to answer the question, what did the Arctic look like 2 million years ago? Right? So we, we know that it was warmer, it was about 10 to 20 degrees Celsius warmer than now, but what lived there? And the researchers were able to find DNA that had been preserved in this great big geological structure in northern Greenland to find not only that it was a a boreal forest, but that there were mastodons, reindeer, hares, geese, and even lemmings there. Probably there were carnivores too, but there's no DNA evidence of that yet, but there was probably something eating these animals. Um, And what they managed to find was about 41 different samples of DNA that were in the clay and quartz that was part of this sediment deposit. So DNA, you know, normally degrades pretty quickly outside of a biological environment like that Siberian tooth. But these DNA fragments had actually bonded to the minerals and then frozen really quickly. So this kind of meant that they were preserved and could then, you know, now be compared to the huge libraries of existing mammalian DNA that we have. So it's really incredible scientific advance in looking at DNA. It's also incredible to realize that these species were able to thrive, you know, so far north, even though it was warmer, you know, it still would have been dark all winter. It still would have been a very challenging environment for them. So it really shows you the incredible adaptation that different animals can have to different eras in the climate. Now, obviously, the current pace of man-made climate change is a little bit too fast for species to be able to do this now. But still, this research is giving us an incredible picture into the Arctic from two million years ago. So, like, when we think of the Arctic, we often think of, you know, snow and dark uh, and snow animals. You're saying that it was much more like a 
like a forest. Yeah, it was like a forest with, you know, like free running water, different kinds of plants. And this was really the first time we were able to get a picture of what kind of animals were there. Um, it's a little bit weird, like you say, to imagine it uh, like still getting dark in the way that we know the poles do now, but not in a not in an icy or snowy context, just kind of, you know, normal, normal, free spirited animal living. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like uh, having been to the the Arctic Circle, it is it gets it's dark all the time, pretty much, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's certainly during the winter months, it's dark all the time. And the idea that that could be separated from temperature, the idea that that wasn't also a really cold place is kind of a weird thing to think about. Absolutely. Has that has changed our understanding of animal movements or anything? Or, or do we always think that there might be those sort of animals there because we knew this area had been a lot less cold in the past? I mean, it's definitely showing that the, the amount that these different species can adapt to um, changes in temperature is, is bigger than anyone would have thought it was before. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of confirms things that researchers might have thought, but definitely, you know, it would be interesting to see will we be able to look even further into the past in terms of the DNA record uh, now that we're realizing that it's possible. Ruth, our third story has to do with hearing. It does. And it's about kind of perception and how our brains give us this seemingly seamless uh, uh, information about the world around us. But our brains do take up a huge amount of energy because they are processing so much information. Uh, and, and one thing that our brains are very clever at doing is taking shortcuts. So, uh, you know, you might see words where the first letter of the word is right and the last letter of the word is right, but the letters in the middle are all scrambled up. But your brain sort of puts the word together quite easily. But your brain does that in another way. It pulls in information from your other senses um, when it's looking at things and trying to make sense uh, of things. And and this is work that was published in Psychological Science from universities in the US and France. And they were trying to see how does the brain bring together information from sound and information from sight? How do those two strands of information interact together? And they did this by showing 40 participants two objects that were at various different stages of morphing into each other. So for example, a bird slowly turning into a plane, and they would show them to the participants at different stages. And at the same time, they played sounds to their participants. So sometimes they played a related sound, so the sound of a bird or the sound of a plane, or sometimes they played something completely unrelated, say someone hammering in a nail. And then they asked the participants to use a sliding scale and they had to remember which stage of the morph had they seen. So did they see something that was more bird-like or more plane-like? And what they found was the participants made that selection more quickly and they shifted their selection more cl- to, to more closely match a related sound if they'd heard it. So if you heard a bird sound at the same time, you were more likely to pick a bird quickly and you were more likely to say that the object was more bird-like. Um, They then went on to do a couple of other experiments because they wanted to see, well, is it just altering your decision making? So is it that that if you heard the sound when you're making the decision, would that kind of make your brain, you know, think, well, I've got a bird sound, so now I'm thinking bird, so I'll say more bird. Um, So they repeated the experiment with a bigger group and they found, no, that didn't make any difference. So hearing the sound when you're actually making your decision didn't seem to change anything. And then they did the same thing where they played the sound beforehand, because maybe if you just heard a sound, your brain might be more open to saying, I'm thinking of birds. So now when I see something that's in between a bird and a plane, I'm more likely to say bird. Um, so what it shows is it has to be at the same time. When you get that sound and visual information at the same time, it actually alters our visual perception. Um, so, 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 we, so we might hear the word bird, look at a plane and actually we'll think bird. 
Well, it probably is more subtle than that in that it's informing your brain. It's giving you that shortcut, but it's certainly going to take your brain longer to say, you know, and of course we're talking in fractions of seconds here, but it is going to take your brain longer to make that association. And in fact, what they're also saying is if you see a plane and hear a plane sound, you're actually, you know, your per- your perception of that object that you're seeing is more plane-like than if you saw the plane without the sound. Um, so so yeah. there's a really tight integration because your brain is having to make these shortcuts all the time. And it's very tightly integrated when we hear. This experiment shows that sound and vision are very tightly integrated. All right. Um, our final story has to do with more sounds, uh, Jessamine. And this is work that we covered in the program a few months ago uh, in reverse. Right. So this is another study from the University of Copenhagen, basically looking at humans' ability to recognize emotions in domestic versus wild animals. So the researchers for this recorded audio clips of horses, pigs, goats, cattle, and also wild horses and wild boars. Uh, They looked for sounds that were either made when the animal was experienced high emotion, as determined by heart rate that was high or movement, or, you know, sort of a less heightened emotional state. And also they looked at whether the sound was made in a positive context, such as anticipating food, or a more negative context, like being isolated and away from other animals. And they basically recruited a bunch of participants from many different countries to listen online to pairs of the sounds and try to rate, was the emotional intensity high or low, and was the emotion in general positive or negative? Now, in general, they were able, these people that were recruited for the study were able to predict the emotional intensity correctly about 54% of the time, and whether it was positive or negative 55% of the time, which is technically better than chance. Um, But not by much, right? Not by like a huge amount, but also I I think it's interesting because they also did this for um, human speech using meaningless strings of words and trying to get them to be delivered in either a very emotional or a not very emotional way and having either very positive or very negative emotion. And uh, people were actually only like the 60 to 70% good at predicting the emotional intensity of people um, and the emotional quality of people. Uh, so actually, you know, the the headline result from this was that the uh, ability of people to predict uh, emotional states was higher for these domesticated animals compared to wild animals, which is interesting. You know, it's like, are we exposed more to domesticated animals or maybe animals that are domesticated have learned to vocally express emotions in a way that's more legible to us? Um, right. But also... So, so, I, that the way, so that the way they make noise is almost like I got to say this in a, in a way that a human would understand. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's a little bit like people talk about how cats have learned to meow to sound like babies so that we <laughs> so that we listen to them and respond to their needs. <laughs> but I thought one thing that was interesting from this is that they found people were actually better at predicting the emotional intensity of pigs and horses than the emotional intensity of other human beings. Um, so that's a little bit troubling. We were better at predicting whether <laughs> humans were feeling positive or negative emotions, uh, which makes sense, I guess, because we've we've hopefully practiced that. <laughs> yeah, you, you would hope. All right. Before we go, uh, we're going to do a quick test to see how good you are at recognizing emotions in animals. So one of these is negative and the other is, um, is positive. I want you to tell me which one is negative. Is it A or B? All right. So looking for the negative one. Is it the first or the second sound? Here's the first sound. And here is the second sound. So one of those is negative and one of them is positive. Is it the first or the second, A or B? Ruth? I think it's B. Jessamine? I think it's B as well, but I should say that I've never had a horse. So <laughs> I'm not very confident in that. I've also sa- never had a horse. <laughs> you, you sound horse. 
Um, Fair. Uh, you're both correct. You're both correct. Well done. And if you played at home, uh, it is the second sound uh, is the sound of a scream from a horse. The first is a whinny, a more pleasant uh, sound from horses. So well done. You both. I wouldn't have a clue, I have to be honest. I'm not a, not a, not a big fan of horses, actually. Um, right. That's it from our uh, news round. Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from the University of Galway. Thank you very much. Now, one of the most blindingly obvious problems facing human space travel is that space is very, very, very big. It's really, really big. And being big, things in it are far away. And the amount of time it takes to get from one place to the next presents a myriad of changes for any aspiring Star Trekker. So you're going to need a lot of supplies and you're going to have to spend a lot of time exposed to radiation and you're going to get bored and old before you get there. Mainly for the sake of storyline sci-fi, We've often circumvented these problems by putting the crew into hibernation or deep sleep. But as it turns out, that might just actually be a viable solution in the real world too. Sandy Martin is Professor Emerita at the Department of Cell and Development Biology at the University of Colorado. Welcome to the program, uh, Sandy. Uh, How did you get interested in this fascinating subject of human hibernation? Well, human hibernation was not my first um, thought. I guess I was interested in it more as an amazing adaptation for mammals. And I wondered what makes some mammals hibernate and others not? And and how exactly can you orchestrate such an incredible dynamic phenotype? But um, during my time at the University of Colorado, some students asked me to give a talk in a symposium they were organizing about space. And they specifically requested that I give them a uh, talk about the possibilities of human hibernation. My lab by then had been studying hibernation for quite a long time, probably 25 years. And um, I hadn't really ever thought about it very carefully, but it prompted me to go to the literature and say, well, what are people saying about space travel these days? And I was amazed to find an actual design that had been paid for by NASA to put 100 people on Mars soon. And in order to do that, they proposed that 96 of the 100 people would be put into the state of suspended animation or synthetic torpor, whatever you want to call it, a a hypometabolic state, so a very low metabolic state. And uh, the other four people would take care of them. And this would shrink the payload, making it light enough to escape Earth's gravity and feasible to fly as far as Mars. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so, and this isn't sci-fi. This is NASA. This is NASA. This is a real design, and it's in the literature. And I was shocked to see how they said they were going to put these humans into this hypometabolic state because they said they were going to use current medical practice. And my thoughts of hypometabolism as they are as it's used currently in medicine is that that wouldn't be very practical. By chance, my daughter was an emergency medicine resident at the University of Colorado for four years during that window. And I, uh, she popped over for lunch the day I was contemplating this talk. And, and I asked her, is, what do you think about this? Is this current medical practice really something that could be used to put people into a suspended animation state for months on the way to Mars? And she was pretty adamant that, no, this was not going to be a good idea. And I thought, well, you know, if these people really want to put 96 people into a suspended animation, they really ought to figure out how hibernators do this because it's much less invasive and much more gentle and much more quickly recovered from. When you say um, current medical techniques, um, 
are you talking about therapeutic hypothermia? Yes. Uh, uh, so, so what is that? Uh, and and I, I didn't, I didn't realize that was a thing that we we can actually do this, but it's just a bit, it's it's a bit risky. And it's a bit uncomfortable. Right. Um, and so, we're what we call homeotherms, which means that we are exquisitely designed to maintain a constant body temperature. And you know this pretty much any day of the year or the month or the week or whatever that you take your temperature, it's always the same, um, 37 Celsius. And it, it doesn't deviate from that unless you're sick and you have a fever or something's really wrong with you, i.e. you're hypothermic. And, and that's usually an uncontrollable state that leads to death, hypothermia. So it's a runaway problem of no longer being able to maintain normal high body temperature. We have very powerful mechanisms that keep our body temperature constant at that 37 degrees Celsius. And, um, and so if your body temperature starts to drop, you initiate mechanisms to bring it back up again. And conspicuously in humans, that's shivering. So in order to put a person into therapeutic hypothermia, you have to block the neuromuscular junction and block the shivering response, which is being used to generate heat to raise your body temperature back to that set point that uh, your body wants to defend. And, and so in order to do that, you shiver. But if you want to block shivering, you're also blocking the respiratory muscles. And you have to breathe in order to live, even if you need to breathe less frequently if you're cooler. Um, and so the way that's countered in medicine is to intubate you. And, and that's part of the problem. So you can't imagine blocking shivering and intubating people for months on their way to Mars. How long could you keep a human in that state for? I mean, I think it's more a problem of how much degradation in your body function would happen and how dangerous it is in terms of the possibility for infection or machine failure or, or just, I mean, it's just, it's just not something you really want to do to a healthy person. Uh, I mean, obviously it isn't, but if you really, really, and, and astronauts I know endure often uh, lots of discomfort to, to get to um, where they are or where they want to be, even in their training, uh, you know, experiencing G-forces and so on. Um, if they are less, I mean, presumably you're unconscious at this point. Yes. Uh, I mean, the infection is obviously one thing, but I, I, in terms of the body processes, wouldn't you starve or wouldn't you? Um... Well, so that's the, that's the other thing they, they offered was this <laughs> method of feeding through the vasculature. And so that's put someone also on a drip. invasive. It's lines. They're hard to maintain, um, clean and sterile. And, and this just feels like something that's way less feasible than a natural hibernation state because the natural hibernators enter torpor six months later they emerge from torpor they still have muscle strength they still behave normally you're talking about bears and stuff yeah well yeah i'm talking about the species of mammals which are widely distributed um, among different mammalian lineages that hibernate natural hibernation it seems like okay, a much so less dangerous approach, even though we don't understand it well enough to fully recapitulate it in a human yet. But I think if we work at it, that's a place we should be trying to go. Absolutely, because it does sound a horrible way to get to Mars and um, being intubated and in an IV drip. Yeah. But fascinating that theoretically it is possible, although risky. The other option, of course, is to find some way to trigger hibernation in in humans. Now, as you said, hibernation is actually uh, found in lots of different types of, uh, of animals. 
and that must mean that it's quite old, which, which, which should suggest that potentially that mechanism is within us? Well, that's, that's sort of one of my arguments, that it's not crazy to think that humans will someday be able to achieve something much like natural hibernation. That argument is that if we look at the, all the different mammals that are present and alive today, what we see is that there are three main lineages and each of those lineages has hibernating species. And so it suggests that the common ancestor of all mammals was a hibernator and that hibernation is a retained ancestral trait. And if that's true, then we should have most of the genes that enable hibernation. I mean, you can inactivate um, a gene or two here and there, but it's, it's sort of hard to imagine that we couldn't figure out how to overcome that pharmacologically if we understood exactly how it worked. So this is the idea that is, is, is really exciting to me, the idea that we might find a way to be able to send someone into hibernation uh, by tinkering a little bit with the chemistry uh, uh, pharmacologically and inducing a state that we can then bring people back from. So let's start with the inducing. Where are we on this? I mean, have we, ab have we been able to make mammals that don't hibernate hibernate? Not yet. Um, we've been able to induce a reversible lowered body temperature in mammals that don't normally do that, i.e. And does that, does that just put them to sleep? Or what, what happens well, when you reduce the temperature? <laughs> um, yeah, I think their consciousness is compromised. And so if, right. yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about literally the identity of this state versus sleep. And, and it's definitely not my work. So I'm talking a little bit just from understanding what other people have written about. But we're beginning to understand the thermoregulatory system. And if you remember back at the beginning, we talked about how our bodies are primed to defend a constant body temperature. So you can kind of think of a little part of the brain that's acting like a thermostat that information is coming in from maybe your skin or your blood temperature, and it's telling this little part of the brain, hey, you're exactly at the right temperature. We don't need to do anything. But then let's say your temperature starts to drop a little bit, and then your, um, your brain says, wait a minute, you're supposed to be at this particular temperature, 37 for us, and we're going to initiate some mechanisms to generate heat, and that might be shivering or increasing the metabolism, the rate of biochemical reactions throughout the entire body, and that will generate heat and bring the temperature back up to that thermostat set point. Right. This is our body trying to find homeostasis exactly. at this particular temperature and shivering and so on. Exactly. Is, is a way. Now, um, and so you can imagine that if you want to... Is that a bad thing, though? I mean, is that a problem if we start shivering? Or if we, I guess it's going against what we want. Yeah. yeah so I guess the one thing we haven't said clearly or, um, is that when... When temperature goes down, metabolic rate also goes down. And really the goal of putting people into this suspended animation-like state or synthetic torpor is to get rates of biochemical reactions to decrease so that you will not need as much oxygen. You will not make as much CO2 that needs to be removed. You won't need a lot of food and you won't generate a lot of waste that has to be gotten rid of. And all of that helps lower the payload to get that ship to Mars. Essentially, uh, it, it just makes um, human beings a lot less um, resource hungry. Right, and, exactly. Uh, uh, right. And so lowering the met metabolic, uh, metabolic rate is the goal. What about 
it, say we manage to tinker with genes or we find some um, some way of chemically inducing this state in the brain uh, using some sort of stimulation, however however it's done. So we get people into that state. Mm-hmm. If they're if they're not moving at all for months on end, when they wake up, will all of their muscles not have wasted away? Well, again, that's that's one of hibernation's wonderful mysteries is that species that hibernate emerge in the spring ready to go. There might be a little bit of atrophy, but by and large, they conserve muscles and it doesn't compromise their function. Um, and so we know from our work a little bit of how that's done is that resources from muscle are used early in the whole season of hibernation, but towards the end, they redirect other resources into rebuilding muscle. So how all this works, I think just understanding the basic science of how hibernators protect themselves, how they orchestrate their reduced metabolic state, these are important things that we need to make the effort to understand in order to design and engineer a similar state in humans. Okay, so we're, we're starting to try to understand how to, to, to put someone into this extended torpor, this sort of uh, deep sleep. We feel that if animals uh, like bears and other mammals that hibernate, when they come back out of that deep sleep, if they can survive by not uh, wasting their muscles, that, that it is theoretically possible for humans too as well. What about consciousness? You know, if we put someone into sort of a muted existence for a few months what happens to their brain activity are they are they asleep are they dreaming are they conscious the whole time do we know um well we know a a little bit about ground squirrels at least um they are (laughs) so cold when they're hibernating that you can't actually pick up much in the way of brain waves so you have to assume it's like being in the very deepest sleep where you have no awareness and no consciousness and probably no dreaming either and so, um, do you have a feeling that human hibernation is really possible from what you're studying? And, and how far off do you think we are from understanding that? You know, in the, in the grand scheme of research discoveries, it's all about time and money. And the more money you have, the less time it takes. Hibernation is not something that's been well-funded, and, and therefore it has not been well-studied. I think the methods are there now to really crack it open and figure out how it works. And it's really just, is there going to be enough money and enough, are there going to be enough people working on it to make the progress that's needed to actually get humans to hibernate? Because obviously the applications for uh, medicine, for people who want to stay asleep for years and wake up um, (laughs) when things are better, the the applications for space travel, there's so many different um, science fiction uses of of this uh, idea. It would be really, really cool to think that we would be able to figure it out. NASA seems to think it's doable, though, right? NASA is, is building missions... And this is one of the options that they hope will be on the table. So they, they have faith that this is a problem that can be solved. I, Do you share that? Do yes, you share that? absolutely. I think it's a problem that can be solved. Um, I don't know exactly what the solution is right now, because I don't believe we know enough about the really the limits and boundaries in hibernation and how best to achieve it in a, an animal as big as a human. I mean, I'd like to think you could actually cool a human quite low, but evidence suggests that there's a limit to how cool humans can be with respect to whether or not their hearts will be able to maintain a a beat 
And, you know, again, that might be a simple solution. You might just use an external pacemaker. I don't really know yet because we don't know enough. It's a really, really exciting area of research that has so much um, potential, the, the uh, potential in, in real world views. It does. The potential goes far beyond, um, you know, the very small number of people that ultimately will use it to travel through space to every surgery that's done. I mean, if you could lower metabolic demand during surgery without harm and not have it be a high risk possibility, um, heart surgeries, brain surgeries certainly would be better, but probably just about any surgery. You just lower mm. the amount of, um, uh, you could allow operating rooms to be cool and uh, bodies to get a little cooler. Their metabolic rates would go down, blood rushing through would go down, making it easier on surgeons to... You, yeah, you buy more time for the surgeon to do what they need exactly. to do, which of course is yeah. often uh, a, a, a every second can't sort of situation. Right, yeah. Uh, really, really cool. What is the what is the, the thing you're working on at the moment? What is the, 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 the bit you're hoping to crack in this puzzle? Well, I guess my approach to hibernation was generally different than most people's because my background isn't physiology. It's more biochemistry and evolutionary biology. And I was always interested in sort of the evolutionary origins of hibernation. Um, and if you look at a hibernator, especially the small animals, which are the ones that we study, like a ground squirrel, it has two seasons. It has a summer season where it's a, an, an animal that maintains high constant body temperature, just like we do all summer long. That's when it reproduces, it raises its young, it feeds, it, it lives um, and, and behaves like a normal mammal. But in the fall, these animals switch to a profound hibernation phenotype. And by that, it's, it's an amazing behavior where they spend about two weeks at low body temperature with very low metabolic rates. And we're talking maybe 2% of their active metabolic rate, resting metabolic rate. And then they spontaneously rewarm and get back to that normal high temperature that they have in the summertime, but they only maintain that for 12 hours. And then they allow their bodies to cool back down. So they really become heterotherms where they're cycling back and forth from these very long periods in the, at low temperature or in torpor, and then very rapid rewarmings to high temperature. And, and by rapid, I mean, they can raise their body temperature 30 degrees in less than two hours. This is an extremely wow. active metabolic state. In fact, it's hyperactive compared to their resting state or even active state in the summertime. And um, in that period of time, they undergo rapid metabolism increases when oxygen delivery is pretty precarious because their blood is cold and sluggish. And so they're resistant to what we call ischemia reperfusion injury. And that's a very common feature of stroke and heart attack and um, any kind of trauma. So we wanna know how they're protected and, and they're super protected in the winter compared to the summer. And mm. so as a, as a, I guess I could call myself a comparative biochemist, my interest has been what switches in the bodies of these animals that takes them from this normal mammal behavior to this crazy heterothermic behavior and allows them to survive. And that we should be able to figure that out because they have the same genes in both states. And the only way you can change the phenotype of the cells or of the organism is to change the pattern of gene expression. And therefore, if we can understand which genes are expressed at the different times, we should be able to get a handle on all the switches that are controlling 
either the seasonal behavior for hibernation or that switch that makes them go torpid and then come back out again. So that's, that's what we've done is we've created um, a tissue bank that enables us to study the transition points of these behaviors. It's very, very cool. Uh, one of the issues, of course, that we haven't really touched on is the lack of oxygen uh, that, that could cause uh, a sort of a poisoning of the brain. Right. Is that, is that an issue when a mammals hibernate? Surely not. No, I mean, that's, they're, they are protected from that being an issue. And part of that is, is the way they shunt their blood. They, they put more blood in their brain and uh, deprive their peripheral tissues. But, but the other part is an, an innate protection that must happen from switching biochemical and genetic pathways to get this protected state. And, and I think one of the most interesting things, and, and this is work that was done years ago. Well, it's been done by several people in several different organ systems. But if you study ground squirrels, um, certainly most species, um, 13 lion ground squirrels and golden mantle ground squirrels, um, and some species of hamsters, there's an enhanced protection from damage that can be done by standard experimentation for inducing ischemia. And that's seen in the brain and in the liver and in the intestine. And, and several studies have reported this natural protection. So this is a place where the idea would be that differential expression of something is really important to give that um, enhanced protection and that modern methods now allow you to find genes based on just simply their differential expression. It's such a fascinating uh, subject and really brilliant to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. That's Sandy Martin from the University of Colorado. Thanks, Thank Sandy. you, my pleasure. Wow, that was really fascinating, wasn't it? And like the idea that Sandy thinks that this is theoretically possible and that NASA's banking on it to get its people to Mars is is really exciting. I have to say, like, I love it when we cover something like that, something that is just on the edge of science fiction, science fact. Our producer, Aidan McKelvey, joins me. Uh, to discuss. I might point out that we are midway uh, in the quarterfinals between uh, Morocco and Portugal and Morocco are 1-0 up. So this will be a short version of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Time, but Aidan apparently is a World Cup geek. I did not know this. You know a lot of things about World Cup history. Is this correct? I do. I know an unnecessary amount of things about World Cup history. My, my girlfriend has been enjoying recently. Apparently, I didn't notice, but apparently since our relationship, I've mentioned the 1990 World Cup about a million times. She's like, oh, shine on about the 1990 Why <laughs> so, that one? Why that one? Why um, that one? It's like my, yeah, it's like also, it, I know it's like the most famous one for Ireland, but it's also like my first sporting yeah. memory, really. No, like, for sure. Was, yeah, and, so and, and like, what a, what a memory to have. Yeah. Um, right. So let's, let's get on with the comments from the last couple of weeks because we want to get back to that game. Uh, come on, Morocco. Um, so we, we, we played this amazing interview for you in last week's podcast where essentially we had um, uh, this researcher um, who is a cosmologist and sort of was on the multiverse train very early on she kind of said look I think we have evidence for the multiverse and here's and she walked us through it and it was a little bit dense but for me it was like and people love the multiverse. The, the podcast numbers on that are just absolutely huge. So thanks for, for listening. If you know when anyone's interested in, in, in physics or cosmology, it's a really good one. Um, 
just to your comments from it, uh, someone says, how is our universe expanding now if it was smaller? Now, maybe I'm reading that wrong, but isn't that almost the definition of expanding, that it was small and it gets bigger? Yeah, that's what that's what I thought when I saw it as well. But, uh, you know, maybe in fairness, it's it's kind of hard to get your head around the multiverse and you, the start of the universe and expansion and inflation and all that. Maybe that person just got slightly bamboozled in the moment. And I, I, I can forgive that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, here, listen, uh, it's been a heavy week for all of us with the Christmas party last night. Um, certain certain people really raged it. So, you know, look, um, we get those texts in every once in a while. I was just wondering, was I missing something there? Um we were also talking about uh, mining a, a, a meteorite. So the, a, a meteorite uh, was found to have brand new minerals in it. it they were mined out of uh, a meteorite and found to be like something that we haven't ever found before, new minerals. Um, and then the stone went missing, which is terrible, but actually a fascinating story. We need to follow that up. Um, and the person said, fascinating story. Did they take the stone from the country, all of it, from the people who used it? So, so the story was that this was kind of a local legend. This meteorite has been there for a while. It's sort of a two meter size stone. Was not that the right around about the size? And yep. it's just gone. And we, we, they don't know where it is. But obviously, someone realized, wait a second, this is a valuable thing if scientists are taking samples from it. And they just loaded it into a pickup truck and, and, and left. And we don't know where it is. So that's something to follow up, I think. I think we may have a, a whodunit. It's like a crime podcast, but nobody dies. My favorite sort of podcast. Um. On Could You Run Forever? So if you haven't listened back, by the way, to a previous episode where we talked about running forever and we had uh, an ultra marathon runner on the program, it was really, really good in front of a live audience, really enjoyed it. We got loads of questions in on that. So just to cover on some of them, uh, someone says, what about bad dietary advice being given by our government and the knock-on effect on the population's health? What is the bad dietary advice given by our government? Yeah, I don't know. I would have thought that we're constantly being bombarded with like bombarded is the wrong word because it's the right thing to do but like good dietary advice I would have thought like you know snuggled have a by good have a dietary diet. advice yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the government gives us bad dietary advice I don't think um, other says did anyone hear of fasting Um yes I guess you know what it's, it's unfair because people are listening to this and they text in it's difficult when, they, when we don't have a context to that particular thing but obviously um, you know wanting to lose weight uh, someone said don't hear fasting I have tried fasting I found it really really um, successful while I was doing it and then I came you know I came into winter and winter is like loads of calories not as much exercise and I put it back on which is really frustrating but fasting works fasting? really well were you fasting just to lose weight or yeah. was it like yeah because isn't there a thing as well of like fasting be sexier is, yeah well i mean it's it's difficult obviously for you to be sexier but uh, i'm glad that you're trying like, i know i look i know that's the, the that's i set it up and you knock it down but it, you're my producer <laughs> and i think that's some sort of sexual assault or some sort of like i'm i'm gonna ring joanne and hr i'm pretty sure it's something damn <laughs> i'd survived for so long um <laughs> Yeah, no, like, I, I think, though, isn't there a thing with intermittent fasting where it's all, like, it's, I don't know how, whether there's proof for it, but it's, like, claimed that it's kind of good for, you know, building muscle, good for, everything. for, it's good like, for, for exercise system. and stuff. It's yeah, good for, um, for your um, calorie intake, of course. It regulates, it's good for sleep and everything. So it's not true. Like, it's a, yeah, definitely it's good for, good for it's all It's really things, good yeah. for all those things. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's crap crack, though. Huh? It's crap cracking. Do you know it's not that bad is the thing. Uh, it's just skipping breakfast and then not eating till 12.30 if you finish your meal at eight. It's not so bad when you yeah. think about it. And then you can eat what you like, 
you know, and you don't, you know, you don't have to cut anything out of your diet, which I think is the worst. It's not like, you know, you don't load on food, but you don't need to eat that. It's not like you're starving at the end of it. It's good. Yeah, um, I couldn't do it actually because I get migraines, unfortunately. So can, I can't do it no matter, even if I wanted to. Mm. Another says, risky. can you regenerate teeth? Not sure where that's coming from. Oh, we were talking about like, can you regenerate everything in, in that podcast? Uh, you, you can't, but... Um, you can like you can use stem cells, I believe, to regenerate them. But I think um, you know, our, naturally, our bodies don't regenerate teeth. Obviously, because if you knock someone's adult tooth out, it stays out. Um, but you regenerate enamel, and I think e- using stem cells, you could theoretically regenerate bone. Yeah, I think that is yeah, possible. We, yeah, we also did like a great, which you might put out in the gold podcast. Uh, this week coming we did, had a great discussion a good few years back so so many years back that i can't remember who it was but it was about teeth and there are animals like that constantly are regenerating their teeth but for some sort of quirk of evolutionary history we don't we can't i think it's to do with our teeth have to fit exactly into each other because of our style of biting but the likes of sharks are constantly regenerating tooth after tooth after tooth after tooth because mm. they, sna- they snap them off every so often um, so we might put that out in the, in the podcast I remember it was a really intriguing interview I, one of those like who, who would have thought that teeth could be so interesting <laughs> but we'll put that out during the gold podcast uh, during the week yep uh, we we covered Alzheimer's a couple of weeks ago just a correction on the programme uh, someone has uh, texted incorrectly to say can you talk please correct the information on lecanemab the lady said it improved cognition by 27%. In fact, there was a reported 27% less progression than the placebo group. This time, uh, translates to a tiny difference in reality, 1.4 on a 90-point scale. Tiny is, I mean, tiny is, of course, in the eye of, of the beholder, but it's not, it is not 27% um, improved cognition. So thank you for that. Um, right, uh, second half has started. So um, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> uh, Aidan McKelvey, uh, producer, thanks very much for joining us. Simon Keane, Steve Dawn, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. We'll see you then. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.